Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You know what? What? Peter's not here on this week. And Jordan, I kind of feel like Skippy Longstocking. <laughs> I could sing the show tune, Skippy Longstocking. Was third in the Belmont last week. Very close. Win, place, or show. It was very close for uh, for Skippy Longstocking. I won't sing the theme song because I don't want to take over for uh, Walter Mays and Eric Schwartzel and their ability to... I think we birthed a new podcast. I think that's what we did last week. We started a new podcast, Mays. The Tonys, basically anything theater, we're going to have Eric Schwartzel and Walter Mays. They'll handle... I'll have them sing the Pippi Longstocking theme song. You've already been part of one podcast musical, right? Yeah, you're right. The big game. Yeah, I think there's another one coming down the road. Horse racing, award shows, and when we add The Bachelorette to this, forget about it. No underdogs here. That's the favorite. Eight to shoot. Paul, the runner! Loose ball! It's good! With 4.4 to go! Shannon! Don't want to fall! Shannon! From the corner! The cry goes up both far and near for underdog, underdog, underdog. Joe Namath, number 12, has been the one big sideline. He's come down here and he says the Jets are going to win. In fact, he doesn't even predict it. He says, I guarantee a Jet victory. Oh my kid, I ain't even in the guys' league. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. Underdog, Underdog. They're bigger, faster, stronger, more experienced, and on paper, they're just better. Oh my goodness! The longest shot has won the Kentucky Derby! Rich Strike in a stunning, unbelievable upset! Shock and awe in college basketball! Underdog! Underdog! I expect you boys to go out there and not take this team lightly because I promise you, they're going to come at you with everything they've got. Nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. 11 seconds. You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow, up to Schultz. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! George, the dream is alive. Speed of lightning, roar of thunder, fighting all who rob or plunder. Underdog, underdog, underdog. Well, then I guess there's only one thing left to do. Win the whole fucking thing. Welcome to the Underdogs Podcast. Uh, I promise you what we're going to talk about is more pleasant than what we were just uh, (laughs) talking about off air here. That's Jordan Brenner joining us as always i am so excited for our upcoming guest our first returning guest jason sobel from the action network the u.s open championship is here it is in brookline the country club we're going to talk about the movie about it the greatest game ever played we're going to talk about live regrettably yes we're going to talk about that i had a huge gaffe in that interview but you know what there's also an nba finals that we got to talk about here and an underdog story, Jordan, for the ages. 
We talked about it before the NBA Finals, Jordan. Who's going to take down Steph Curry for the Finals MVP? We went through the odds, talked about how, hey, Clay Thompson, maybe Draymond Green. Well, it turns out the number five player on the pre-finals list of the high best odds to win the finals, uh, finals MVP, Andrew Wiggins, the former number one overall pick is coming in here, coming in like rich strike out of nowhere and trailing fast right behind Stephen Curry with 26 points in game five and 17 rebounds. And then in game four, he had 16 rebounds. He is the second best odds going into game six uh, for the finals MVP on the Warriors. Andrew Wiggins, welcome to the Underdogs podcast. I often think of a guy who is like a generational recruit coming out of uh, high school and then the number one overall pick in the draft who makes $30 million a year, quintessential underdog, really what this podcast is all about. Yeah, let's cue up Brian Winhurst going on SVP earlier this week and talking about Andrew Wiggins. Listen to this. That was what I was thinking about tonight because Andrew Wiggins, he's not an underdog. He makes $32 million. While the Warriors were down these last couple of years, winning no games, they kept spending money because they've got it. They re-signed Draymond Green. They re-signed Steph Curry. They re-signed Kevon Looney. They kept Andrew Wiggins. And boy, did it show up tonight. Andrew Wiggins, with the supreme moment in his career, he was a throw-in in a trade. Other teams would have totally gotten rid of him. They stuck with him. They have a $340 million payroll when you consider taxes. You don't just have to beat the Warriors on the court. you got to beat their checkbook. And nothing away from Andrew Wiggins tonight, but this was a checkbook win for the Warriors. Brian is not wrong here. I know he's caught a lot of heat, no pun intended. Oh, God. By the way, if you haven't listened to Basketball Illuminati this week, we do a lot about the heat in the Game 1 of the 2014 NBA Finals where they turned up the heat on the heat and the heat got to LeBron James and then he left the Miami Heat. Wait, do you host another podcast? I'd never heard of it before. Tell me more. I do. It's called Basketball Illuminati, Basketball Illuminati, Basketball Illuminati. I say it three times to keep your third eye open. We host (laughs) it with Amin El Hassan, who also hosts a podcast called Cinephobe, which we did a post-game show this week where there was a huge snafu, a scandal. I would call it ResearchGate if it not were the fact that ResearchGate is a website of like peer-reviewed scientific journalism. Go check that out, Basketball Illuminati and Cinephobe next week. You won't regret it. Okay. Back to Andrew Wiggins here. Back to Wiggins. He makes, you know, $32 million as, as Winhurst says, but I think it is kind of like everything is happening again, where remind me if you've heard this story before, Jordan, Mm -hmm. in the 2015 NBA finals, Stephen Curry averages 26 points a game, six assists, five rebounds, but he did not win the finals MVP. It was his teammate, Andre Iguodala, who averaged 10 points fewer than him, but a much better story because he locked down the opposing superstar player in LeBron James. And you're seeing that narrative coming closer here with Andrew Wiggins. Andrew Wiggins holding Jason Tatum to 37% field goal shooting in this series. He is the leader in the clubhouse for most rebounds in the NBA Finals, which is very surprising considering he's like a small forward, but he is the leader uh, for rebounds. He's averaging 18 points for himself. Andrew Wiggins right now on DraftKings, if you want it, you can get Andrew Wiggins at plus 1400, 14 to one. Yep. 14 to one odds 
plus 1400, which trails Jason Tatum right now at plus 350. Stephen Curry, of course, the obvious favorite at minus 320, meaning you have to bet 100 or $320 to win 100. But Andrew Wiggins, I kind of feel like there's good value here, even though he's not Stephen Curry. And even though Stephen Curry looks like he's going to have a, a vengeance here in game six after shooting 0 for 9 from downtown in game five, Andrew Wiggins. I could see it. 26 points, and 13 rebounds in game five, 17 and 16 in game four. If he has anything close to that in game six and Jason Tatum struggles and Stephen Curry, this is a big parlay here, struggles. Andrew Wiggins, I think, could win the finals MVP. There's certainly a narrative to embrace going that way, right? And it's there is a there's a human nature element to it where you like to see a guy finally live up to his potential or at least some semblance of that potential. That said, Steph's averaging 30 a game. He's so far and away <laughs> the most important player on that team. The rebounding aspect is really interesting, though, because I was trying to figure out, you don't see guys explode for massive rebound totals consistently, then it's so out of character. And I was trying to figure out why he is putting up these massive rebounding games. Is it that he's guarding Tatum, and then they're hunting, they're switching everything, and suddenly he's ending up the possession on a non-shooter or in a position where yes. he's just... He's close to the basket. Is that is that what's happening from what you're seeing? Well, yeah, Ime Doka talked about this is that he's doing a lot of, you know, crashing the boards from the wing because they're doing a lot of switching mm-hmm. and therefore he's going to have someone like Marcus Smart who or or Jalen Brown who might not be, you know, boxing out at the three-point line, but Andrew Wiggins is crashing the boards and he has the vertical vertical leap of um, you know, a, 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 a pogo stick on steroids. Like that guy when he's crashing the boards, you have to box him out. Right. And for the switching defense, it's one of the reasons why switching defenses has a, a blind spot is the, the boards. Because if you're Peyton Pritchard or if you're Marcus Smart, suddenly you find yourself having to box out a Kevon Looney or a Draymond Green or Andrew Wiggins who can leap over you from, the, from downtown. And Andrew Wiggins in this finals... Um, he has nine offensive rebounds uh, for 12 points, which is a points per possession of 1.33. That's money in the bank. But I mean, Jalen Brown has more offensive rebounds than he does the series. Robert Williams does. Kevon Looney has more. Right. But the timeliness of a lot of those rebounds, like in the fourth quarter of game, I think game four, he had some huge offensive rebounds, which in the minds of voters, and I'm not saying they're going to be warped or having a superficial reasoning to pick Andrew Wiggins for finals MVP. Those were memorable offensive rebounds and those stick in your brain. So Andrew Wiggins, while he doesn't have all the totals of some of his teammates on the offensive boards and maybe Jalen Brown, for example, a lot of them have been memorable. And for Andrew Wiggins, like I feel like people are latching onto that narrative and I think it's, it's convincing. Look, there's nothing more memorable than a, than a good offensive rebound, but he is padding his rebound stats on the defensive glass, which more and more I feel like is becoming a symptom Defensive rebounding is not the skill necessarily. Like the rebound goes to someone as the result of a good defensive possession. It's not like the old days where like, oh, Charles Oakley, you know, dominant defensive rebounder. At this point, just like a missed shot finds the guy near the basket. And he happens to be the guy near the basket on a lot of these. But I do keep thinking about something from the older days of this Warriors dynasty. Harrison Barnes, in fact. At the time, I was working on a project with Sean Livingston. I remember him telling me because Harrison Barnes was sort of the least appreciated member of that team. We saw him eventually shoot their way out of a potential other championship. 
But one of the things that Harrison Barnes really unlocked for them was those smaller lineups because he was so strong for his size. And I feel like mm. Wiggins is built the same way, sort of that 6'8 body top, wiry, strong, great athletic ability. And much in the way Harrison Barnes' strength allowed him to guard bigger players, I feel like Wiggins has sort of shown us the same versatility on defense. He can match up against a bigger player if he needs to and not get overwhelmed. And as we were talking about, at least hold his own on the boards in, in a scrum. Is Wiggins sort of like a better version of what Harrison Barnes was to those earlier teams? Well, yeah, I think one of the fascinating things about Wiggs is how well he's defended Jason Tatum without fouling. And Mm -hmm. that goes to the strength you're talking about is the ability to guard someone who's taller than you, who's, you know, a, a, a budding superstar in this league. Here are the stats against Andrew Wiggins, uh, according to NBA.com matchup tracking, which there's a little bit of noise in these numbers, but Mm -hmm. once I tell you these free throw numbers, it is going to be apparent the trend here against Andrew Wiggins, Jason Tatum is shooting 18 of 48 for a field goal percentage of 37% and his points per 100 possessions with Andrew Wiggins guarding him is 24.7, which sounds good. But when you compare it to all other defenders, Jason Tatum is scoring 34 points every 100 possession. And you wonder to yourself, okay, he's shooting 37% from the floor against Andrew Wiggins and 37% in this series. So really Wiggins isn't doing all that much to curb his effectiveness. Where is he getting that scoring from? It's at the free throw line with Andrew Wiggins guarding Jason Tatum. Jason Tatum has gotten two free throws in this series and with other players, 32 free throws attempted. Think about that. 16 to one comparison between when Andrew Wiggins is guarding him and when all other players are guarding him. And that might be the series is not just, can you guard Jason Tatum, but can you guard him without fouling? And so there's a lot of instances where there's a strip here by Andrew Wiggins on Jason Tatum and Jason Tatum's looking back at the rest. And he kind of has this thing where he, he likes to argue with the referees and then the, the Warriors go the other way. And that's kind of a trend for the Celtics uh, transition defense throughout this season. But that's huge to me is that when he has someone not Andrew Wiggins guarding him, whether it's Steph Curry or Nemanja Bialica or Draymond Green, he's more of an, an attack mode. So I think with Wiggins on him, it really has either gotten in Jason Tatum's head or it has certainly been just a great defensive performance by Andrew Wiggins, principally because he's defending him without fouling. See, this is why you're the host of Vet the Bet, because we can count on you to come up with stats like this, to do the research, to (laughs) uncover little gems like free throws based on who's guarding you. It's so true, though. And it is such an advantage in games like these to be able to get to the line. And I think, you know, everyone forgets in this era of three-point shooting that it becomes a common talking point about people who aren't as well-versed in basketball. Well, it's just threes, it's threes, it's threes. No, it's not. It's layups and free throws too. And they're not getting free throws and 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 you're on it. So the question for me is what can the – it's the Celtics turn now to counter, right? What can they do? Uh, we, I have some ideas. I'm curious where you think they could – pivot and switch things up a little bit. Well, they just have to get better offense and not ISO offense going at Andrew Wiggins is not a recipe for success so far. Mm -hmm. Um, But the way that you get rotations is if you drive and kick and move the ball, Mm -hmm. boom, 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 put them in a blender. That's what the jazz uh, call it. You know, putting the defense in a blender, you drive and kick and move the ball and that gets everyone else more open shots. And so that Jason Tatum won't be facing 
Andrew Wiggins. They force a rotation and suddenly he's looking at Stephen Curry, which obviously he's had more success going at Steph Curry than he is going at Andrew Wiggins. So I think they have to trust the offense and not trust the one-on-one hero ball, which in Boston, they can get themselves in trouble by trying to play hero ball, play to the crowd and go take it at Andrew Wiggins and take that challenge. I think it's a trap. And that's where the, that's where the turnovers come from too, because then they try to make passes that are too difficult out of those ISO situations. So yeah, I agree with you. Less hunting, more playing through Al Horford, more dribble, dribble handoffs, more getting the ball to Tatum and Brown on the move. I think their offense plays better. And the other thing I'd like to see more, quite frankly, stay big. Stay big. More of Horford and Robert Williams together. Robert Williams second in the in the series and plus minus a plus 31. They are athletic enough and mobile enough and well-versed defensively enough that they can... They can handle the Warriors' smaller lineup at the other end, punish them on the boards. One of the most interesting stats in the series is that the two leaders in plus-minus, I mentioned Robert Williams a second at plus 31. The leader is Kevon Looney at plus 48 in only 108 minutes. It's almost like they're they're playing not against each other. Like one team goes big, then the other team goes big. So that's how these two centers are both piling up strong plus-minuses force the Warriors to adjust to you, play bigger, pound them on the boards. Am I missing something here? I mean, it's just a matter of what happens when Draymond Green is becoming, you know, the idea of him having a a fire lit under his ass and he's able to run in transition and get out in the open court and beat Robert Williams and Al Horford down the floor. And when they go big, um, does that, you know, essentially clog the middle for Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown to attack. But as you say, they just need healthy Robert Williams on the floor and and get that ball movement. I got to say, Robert Williams, a third, he is very underrated as a passer. Some of the touch passes that he has in this series is so fun to watch. Like we don't typically think of him as a great passer, but he has a great ability to just play ping pong with a, with an entry pass and then hit a cutter or hit the guy in the open floor. Um, he's really good at that. And so Al Horford and him playing together, I'm pulling it up right now. Um, they're plus minus together when they're on the floor it's plus six and a hundred in uh, in 67 minutes, which isn't great, but I do think that they can go to that a little bit more, uh, in game six and try to stay big and, and keep Andrew Wiggins off the board. So that that's one thing that they can do. And I think really it, all of this comes down to Jordan mm-hmm. is if Stephen Curry is on the floor, I just don't see how the warriors are going to be able to lose. Like if he's still out there, not in foul trouble, they're going to win this series. I mean, Stephen Curry, if he's healthy and if he's out of foul trouble, that's going to be it. And what's so funny about what X's and O's can they do to stop Andrew Wiggins or to stop Steph Curry? We, we talked about it on Illuminati. Just no matter what, if Steph Curry is hitting shots or not, their offensive rating with Steph on the floor is outrageous. It's about 120 in this series, no matter what you do. If he's, if he's hitting shots or not, doesn't matter. But the other thing is Andrew Wiggins turns into like the worst version of of himself when he's not playing with Stephen Curry with Steph on the floor. Andrew Wiggins is shooting 50% from the floor, 34% from downtown. And he has 56 free throws. Andrew Wiggins in this postseason without Stephen Curry on the floor, he's shooting 32% from the floor, three of 14 from downtown. And he barely has gotten to the line. 
He is not the same player when he's not paired with Stephen Curry. Everything revolves around Steph. And the irony is, Jordan, is that the reason why a lot of times Andrew Wiggins is able to attack and able to get to the basket is because they're distracted. The defenders are distracted with Stephen Curry. He might win finals MVP because Stephen Curry on the floor is drawing two defenders and Wiggins is attacking off of that attention and that gravity going to Stephen Curry, it's going four against three. That's such a great point, largely because you said everything I was going to say. So exactly. You are so brilliant, my friend. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well, there's this other thing, which is I hope, Jordan, that you bet Andrew Wiggins to be the rebounding leader. There was odds for this. Did you see this? Oh, no, I bet I bet Draymond before the series and also get got great odds. And that's what I'm talking about. Like if I really thought it through, who would be what defensive scheme who'd be where? Like, yeah, the ball's going to the place on the floor where where Wiggins is. But yeah, it, it would have been great odds. What was it? Plus like 8,000? Yeah, plus 8,000 for Andrew Wiggins being the rebounding leader. And right now he's got 47 rebounds and no one else is above 40. I had two rebounding bets for Draymond. One was he'd average over 7.2 rebounds per game. And I think he's like basically right at that number, right? Yep. And I had him to be the rebound leader for the series at plus 900 it was not plus uh 8000 i think he's like nine rebounds shy of wiggins so i'm not looking so good there eh, hindsight is 2020 you know no monday morning quarterbacking on your bets here but it would be fascinating if we if there's a listener out there who was on DraftKings and got andrew wiggins at plus 8000 to be the rebounding leader in the finals i mean i can see it like rebounding leader let's say he right now he's averaging 9.4 rebounds mm-hmm. in the finals if he averages a double double in the finals. Steph Curry has a bad game six. Jason Tatum is held to like three of 17 shooting. Like that's going to be the door open for Andrew Wings to win finals MVP. I could see it. But then again, like the dude is shooting his, his splits are 45, 25 and 69. 69. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> Come on. Hey, it's pretty nice. It's pretty nice. No doubt. You made the point, right? So much of what he's getting is because of Steph's gravity. He's just that valuable. I hope we're in an era now where the voters are recognizing that. Brian is right. He's not an underdog, but in terms of betting, he is. And we got a lot of flopping in that game five that was not rewarded. The acting, this is a Tony Awards reference, (laughs) the acting that we saw in game five from Jordan Poole with the phantom swipe from Marcus Smart and the push off from Klay Thompson not resulting in a a call uh, by Andrew Wiggins. Um, or sorry, not resulting in a call by Marcus Smart. But you know what? We got to talk about flop shots. We got to talk <laughs> about the flopping that might be happening on the golf course this weekend. Jordan, you snagged a, a two-time or two-time guest, Jason Sobel, for this week's uh, U.S. Open preview. He was awesome. I can't wait for the listeners to hear it. So, without further ado, let's get to U.S. Open talk at Brookline with Jason Sobel. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
Remember the best vacation you've ever taken? Make your next one even better with Get Your Guide. With Get Your Guide, you can book over 100,000 unforgettable experiences in the U.S. and around the world. Want to see the Grand Canyon from a helicopter? They got you. Watching a wrestling match in Mexico City? No problem. Or how about a guided tour of Rome's ancient ruins? Wherever you're going, whatever you're into, book your next travel experience at getyourguide.com. All right, we are really excited to be joined again by our first two-time guest in Underdog's podcast history, the great Jason Sobel of the Action Network. Jason, welcome back. Thank you so much for not immediately running away after one experience with us. Yeah, all that tells me, Jordan, is that you pissed off every other guest enough that they wouldn't come back on a second time. And uh, apparently you didn't do that with me. So you'll have to try harder this time. Yeah, anyone who knows that, who knows me, would not be surprised by that. So yes. <laughs> thank you for bucking the trend. Yeah, of course. How are things in Brookline? And have you discovered any food hacks uh, similar to what you had at the Masters with your makeshift bacon, egg, and cheese with the, uh, the egg salad and the crispy bacon? Yeah, no, it's been a, a down low, kind of low key week uh, so far as far as the food is concerned. Went out, I, I went to college right around here. I went to college about 10 minutes away from here. And so I uh, met up with a college roommate the first night and we watched the Celtics game with a bunch of Celtics fans. Last night, went to Fenway, sat nine rows behind the, the Red Sox dugout. So I'm, I'm taking it all in. Might go see a revolution game tonight. I mean, we're, we're really doing the whole New England thing. This week, I love this area. Lived here for a while, so um, you know it's been really fun. But now, as far as the food, it's not like you know I'm crushing lobster rolls every every day or anything like that. I, I wish I was. Where did you go to college? I went to Brandeis in Waltham. Okay, I went to Tufts, so we can just we'll just do <laughs> Boston College stuff for the rest of. But I I will say from my college days, one of my great sporting memories is being at the Ryder Cup in Brookline in in '99. I was a senior in college. Um, I was out there the final day. In fact, I was coming out of a hospitality tent on 17 when mm-hmm. Olth Abel and Justin Leonard were, were, were coming up to the finish. And Olth Abel um, is in the fairway, hits his approach shot, and as he's hitting it, someone yells out something. He hits the ball. He stares off in the direction, and I'm not kidding. It's like his eyes were right on me. I'm like, no, 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 not me. <laughs> Somebody else here. I swear I didn't say it. You're like the dude at Malice at the Palace when Ron Artest went into the stands and he just yes. beat down on someone else. I was like, wrong place, wrong time. But yeah, it was it was the other guy, <laughs> not me. But he was not happy. And then I stayed on the fairway to watch. You could see Leonard's putt. And all I remember is just like you see the, the ball rolling, 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 and it just disappears. And it took a second to realize – Oh my God, that went in the hole. Mm-hmm. What just happened? And then obviously pandemonium ensued. Yeah. So I played here about 20 years ago. And of course, we get to 17 and we go, oh, has anyone ever tried the Justin Leonard button? The member that we were playing with said, everybody tries the Justin <laughs> Leonard button. That's what everyone does when they get here to the 17th hole. And so I, I'm going to tell you a good story just because. I've been trying to tell this story on as many platforms as I can this week because uh, it's embarrassing to a buddy of mine, and who doesn't like embarrassing one of their friends? So this is about, we're trying to figure it out, about 18, 20 years ago. My college roommate that I referenced a few minutes ago, he lives here in Boston. He had won an auction for uh, three, three people to go out and play the country club with a member. And so he was taking myself and our other friend, Jared, and my friend Matt brings us all here, and we're two hours early, and... No one's even here yet. They say, yeah, you got your run of the place, lunch, go hit some balls, whatever you want to do. 
So my friend Jared had grown up, you know, minutes away from here. This was always like the cathedral. I always wanted to come here. I always wanted to play here. This was sort of the, the pinnacle for him. So we get to the range. and He's just kind of soaking it all in. He goes, man, they even have Pro V1s at the range with the Country Club logo. How cool is this? I'm looking around. There's nobody there. I'm getting like, well, why don't you take one? Just a range ball. Uh, all right. Yeah. He kind of looks around, puts one in his bag. Come on. Come on. Take a few of them. They're, they're range balls. There are hundreds of them out here. So, okay. Yeah. I'll take a few. I go, dude, load up. I mean, come on. Like, when are you going to come <laughs> back here? So he grabs about, I'd say about two dozen golf balls from the range, throws them in his bag. So we, we hit balls for a while. We have lunch. We do all this stuff. Finally, we meet up with the member. We're on the first date. And we've got two caddies with us. And one of the caddies turns to Jared and says, hey, you've got a bigger bag. Do you mind if I change it out for a smaller carry bag that I can take? Jared says, yeah, yeah, no problem. And we're sitting there talking. And he unzips the pocket. And it was like slow motion where he's going, no, <laughs> like that. All the range balls come tumbling out of his bag. It's dead quiet for about 10 seconds. The member finally looks at us and says, uh, all right, I guess we'll uh, go play now. Not a great start to the whole day, but it went <laughs> You're those guys. Yeah. So we're not. He is. We're not. I, okay. I right. talked him into it. I took nothing. Yeah, you just encouraged the whole thing. Yep. Yeah, got it. Yep. He aided and abetted. Yes. I'm merely a witness. When we talk about Brookline and the country club, we have to go all the way back to one of the great underdog stories of all time is – Francis Wiemet, a 20-year-old caddy, former caddy who walked across the street and played in the Open, right? It was 1913, the U.S. Open, and won the entire course or won the entire event in epic fashion. He had a 10-year-old caddy because his like original caddy, his young, he couldn't make it. And so his younger brother, a 10-year-old Eddie Lowry, was the caddy for him. And he went against two like British golfing icons and won the whole damn thing. And the, in 2005, they chronicled this in a Shia LaBeouf movie, um, which is going down as like one of the top golf movies of all time. Goldderby.com has the greatest game ever played, which is, it's commonly known as, as the number four golf movie. And I'm curious, uh, Jordan, and Jason here, they have the ranking of the top five golf movies of all time as number five, The Legend of Bagger Vance. Number four, the greatest, greatest game ever played. Mm-hmm. Number three, Happy Gilmore. Number two, Caddyshack. And number one, of course, Tin Cup. Tin Cup. I'm curious, Jason, how do you feel about that ranking? And Jordan, do you have any misgivings about that arrangement? I go Caddyshack number one. I think Caddyshack's an absolute icon of a movie. I think you can watch it over and over again. It still stands the test of time. That said, it just shows how few golf movies are out there. I mean, a top five that ends with Legend of Bagger Vance, I mean, that's not (laughs) making the top five on any other list other than, uh, well, top four doesn't sound like enough. So I guess we'll throw that one on the end of it. Come on. We need more golf movies is what I take from that. Yeah, I look at this list and I'm like, there's some uh, honorable mentions. A Gentleman's Game, Tommy's Honor. This could have been a great vet the bet, by the way. Bobby Jones, Stroke of Genius in 2004. (laughs) Yeah, we don't have too many golf movies. That's right. What about Pippi Longstocking and the uh, quest for the the hole-in-one? No? 
<laughs> no, not not in there. But the Francis Wiemit story, um, are you tired of it at this point or does it never get old? The the 1913, uh, the, the caddy from Boston just hops onto the course and kicks the uh, the the British guy's ass in that one. No, it's only 109 years old. I, I have fond memories of covering that one. Uh, it was a brilliant day. <laughs> Look, he lived right off the, the 17th hole. We were doing uh, our radio show yesterday. One of my co-hosts said, um, you know, Francis, we met, you know, he's, he's gone now. And he's, he kind of stopped himself. He goes, I assume he is. I said, well, <laughs> if not, you just killed the man. You know, he's been around for 150 years or something. And, you know, you just buried him there. So, no, it, it, look, it's a, it's a great story. It's very cool that the USGA has taken it upon themselves to understand the history of the game and come back to celebrate that history. The last time we did something like this, I, I think it was probably Marion when they came to Philadelphia back in 2013 when Justin Rose won that one. And so I like coming back to these old-style courses that stand the test of time. This is not going to look the same as it looked like in 1913. It's not like, oh, well, with modern equipment, these guys should shoot 62 on this course every day. It's going to be a very difficult test. And I think it's really cool that they come back here. The untold story of the greatest game ever played, by the way, is that Francis Weeman actually stole two dozen range balls at the end of the tournament. <laughs> yeah. Good for him. <laughs> All right, let's talk some golf. We're going to get into some underdog angles in a little bit. But first, for those of our, our, our listeners who may not be as familiar with the country club, sort of break down the course, what type of player it suits, who might be in trouble on this type of a course. You know, And obviously you get the, uh, the, the special USGA touches to top it off. Yeah, fairways are actually a little bit wider than we've seen at recent U.S. Opens. Now, they're severely sloped so that uh, you have to hit it into the right spots in the fairways or else they're going to bound into the rough. The rough is not as long as we've seen in, in recent memory at a U.S. Open, but uh, just as thick. I mean, it's going to sit down. There are times we've seen uh, social media videos from players and caddies over the past week where a guy drops a ball down and you're sitting right over the the ball with your phone and your camera and you can't even see it sitting down there on the rough. So uh, what we've seen is a, a trend recently of big, strong players. Brooks kept it twice in the past six years. Dustin Johnson, Gary Woodland, Bryson DeChambeau, and last year's winner, John Rahm. What do they all have in common? They look like golf's arm wrestling squad. I mean, they look like a, a team of, I don't want to use the linebacker comparison, but at least, you know, maybe tight ends or uh, strong safeties that uh, can go out there and, muscle the ball out of the rough. I don't know whether it's going to take a player like that this week. I think we could see some shorter hitters have more of a chance. Only plays about 7,200 yards on the scorecard and might even be shorter uh, during a few points uh, of the tournament round. So uh, I would look at, you know, guys, uh, essentially this is going to open it up uh, to, to more players, level the playing field a little bit. But it should be a really fun test. Course looks great. Min condition. Some great runoff areas. The ninth hole is going to be one where uh, if I was coming just as a spectator, I'm hanging out there watching balls that get up to the green, look like they stop about 10 feet shy of the hole, all of a sudden start trickling. Next thing you know, you've got a 60-yard pitch shot right back up that same hill trying to keep it there. That's going to be very fun to watch. So I know you've been eyeing Shane Lowry since the PGA. Mm -hmm. I've read a few write-ups. What is it about... Lowry that has you sort of anointing him as your top pick to win this week. Not related to Eddie Lowry from the 1914, right? <sighs> we don't know that. I don't think so. Or Kyle we, Lowry. We don't know that. <laughs> Not related to Kyle. We don't know that. 
it, it yeah. was very funny though. A few years ago, Rory McIlroy coming off his RBC Canadian Open win three years ago, won the Raptors were in the middle of a playoff race, and um, and he put on he beat Shane Lowry, who's one of his best friends, and put on a Raptors jersey afterwards as he was playing to the Canadian crowd. Well, it happened to be a Kyle Lowry jersey, so he's essentially trolling Shane Lowry with a Lowry jersey on as he's celebrating his victory afterwards, which I'll always remember. I thought that was cool. So, Did he flop at any point? Rory does not flop. Rory's not a flopper. Golfers don't flap. Come on. They- flop shots. Oh, yeah. yeah. Where's Peter when I, when I need him? Yeah. Trust me, if you're, if you're following the golf world right now, there's a lot of flopping going on, but not from Rory McIlroy. So uh, in any case, where were we? Oh, Shane Lowry. Trending in the right direction. He's played 12 events so far in 2022, hasn't finished worse than 35th in any of them, third place at the Masters. Uh, it's not like he does anything better than everybody else, but drives it well, approach shots uh, really good, great hands around the greens, good putter. If he rolls in a few more putts this week than he did at the Masters, I, I absolutely can see him. Love the number. He's right around 30, 35 to 1 this week. So, yeah, again, I, I've been eyeing him for a long time, him and a few other players, but there, there's a nice little second tier of guys that I'm looking at this week, and there's a whole bunch of them that I'll play for this. Keep rolling on that. Who else? Give us that second tier of those guys you like, and, and I'm definitely tailing you on Lowry. I, I see him at plus 2,800. I might be able to get him a little better somewhere else, but yeah. who else in that range are you eyeing? Matt Fitzpatrick, who won the 2013 U.S. Amateur on this very golf course. He's staying with the same family this week that he stayed with back then. He's been wow. the best player on the PGA Tour for a while this year based on strokes gained total. Rory just passed him this past week, but he's a close second. And that there's not really a better barometer for who's playing great golf right now. So Fitzpatrick playing really good golf. And then he plays his best golf on tough golf courses when the score is closer in relation to par is when he's done his best historically. It's the U.S. Open. We're going to see a winning score pretty close to even par. Even if it is five under or six under, it's not going to be 23 under. It's not going to be a birdie fest. We know that. And so Fitzpatrick's a guy that I like. And then I'll go right down the list of guys in that same range. Tony Finau, Daniel Berger I like a lot this week. Max Homa, Sungjae Im, a little bit further down the line. Webb Simpson, Justin Rose. Oh, you said Webb Simpson. <laughs> go Deeks. All right. Will Zalatoris. Oh, there we go. Sixth in the Masters, uh, right behind Lowry and McElroy, and also, uh, of course, Scotty Scheffler. Will Zalatoris, also on your list at plus 3,000 that you listed in your article at the oh. Action Network. Uh, Jordan also likes Will Zalatoris in this one. Um, I obviously do. So does he finally break through and get – one of these majors that he's been so close and yet so far. First of all, I think Cameron Young, if he's listening to the podcast right now, would like an apology because you have not mentioned fellow Wake Forest alum Cameron Young, who's playing with Will Zalatoris over the first two rounds. Oh, and he's yeah. been fantastic in his rookie season, five top three finishes. That said, I like Zal. Look, Zalatoris is a world class ball striker, might be the best in the world. If not, he's in the top three or four alongside Justin Thomas, Colin Morikawa. Maybe John Rahm, Rory McIlroy. In, in any case, uh, I just don't trust Will on these fast, slick greens to make enough four, five, six footers. I mean, uh, this this tournament is all about trying to save par, managing your game, being able to get out without too many big mistakes. Boy, at, at some point, Zalatoris is going to need to make some crucial five footers 
to save par and, and keep his rounds going. And I just don't have full confidence he can do it. That said, I still have him, I think, what, 13th in my ranking of the top 50 uh, in the field this week. So it's not like I don't like him at all, but I'm, I'm not going all in on Zalatoris just yet because of that. I did mention liking him in last week's pod, and then I, I spent a while talking with my buddy from Boston who pointed out some of the same things you did, and we both sort of came back to, you know what, open championship. That might be where he breaks through Yeah, at St. Andrews. That that might be a better look than right now. Can we go back to Daniel Berger for a second? Because of course. I've been wanting – I mean, who doesn't want to talk Daniel Berger, first of all? But I, I've been waiting – what's he, about plus 5,000 right now, and I've sort of been waiting for the right moment to pick him too. But why – why are you feeling better about him right now than uh, at, at any point this year, it sounds like? Okay, so a couple of things. First of all, Berger grew up in South Florida, but his coach from his childhood days moved up to the New England area years ago. And he, he tends to, he's a de facto New Englander. He comes up here uh, during the summers, works on his game, and, and he loves playing golf in New England. He, he was runner up to Jordan Speed. Remember that rake throw where, where Jordan Speed hold a bunker shot in a playoff? Daniel Berger nearly made, people forget, he nearly made a miraculous 40-foot putt uh, to, to keep that playoff going that day. So plays well in New England, likes New England. And then there's the fact that he's been hurt. He's been inconsistent for much of this year, but he really got it back. I, I, I liked what I saw two weeks ago, his last start at the Memorial Tournament, finished the share of fifth place. I'm not sure I'd be as high on him as I am right now without that finish, but uh, I think we're catching Daniel Berger back on the way up. He's been one of the better players in the world over the last really two, two and a half, three years. And, and so I think this could be the the big chance that he's been waiting for to go out and at least seriously challenge, if not win a major championship. If we can, just to t- take a little bit of a dog leg here to talk about Liv, the new, I guess, competitor to the PGA Tour, USGA, all of that stuff, all that news in the headlines right now. What does this do to impact the actual betting for for like majors like this? Does it it shortens the field, of course, but what does that do for you when you're previewing some of these uh, majors when you don't have Dustin Johnson and Phil Mickelson, et cetera? Well, first of all, we've gone 20 minutes until we started talking about Liv, which is a record for me over the past two weeks. Yeah, what the hell, Tom? It was like we had a perfect game going, and then you decided to jinx it. I interrupted writing a column about Liv to talk to you guys and figured we'd be talking about Liv. So I, I love the fact that we didn't get to it until now because I'm, I'm a little sick about You're talking about it. We, You're welcome. We've, we've spent two days. Today's Wednesday morning. I have my radio show uh, in the afternoons, and Monday and Tuesday have been at the U.S. Open, on the driving range, doing our show live, 90% live talk, just because that's what people are talking about. That's what people are asking about. So in any case, as far as the betting markets, uh, Tom, they're still playing this event. Phil's here. Bryson's here. DJ's here. All the live guys who are qualified are still playing. Quite frankly, I don't see that changing for a while. I think there's going to be some serious legal ramifications if you have a player who's qualified and the USGA or PGA of America, the RNA, just says, Nope, sorry, they're not going to be able to play in our event. I, I don't think they win a legal battle against the players if it goes to it. Uh, the Masters is a little bit different because it, it's almost like they knew, what, 50, 60, 70 years ago when they decide these are going to be invitations and not qualifications. Mm. So you don't really qualify for the Masters. Y- you can do something where you know you qualify for them to invite you. And if they don't <laughs> want to invite you, they don't have to invite you. So that's going to be a little bit different, and that's uh, uh, a, a major detail moving forward. That said, all the guys are here this week. I am not necessarily 
uh, discrediting any live golfers based on, well, there's the narrative of them playing somewhere else. And, you know, they're going to have to deal with all the questions and, you know, they're getting uh, fans booing them throughout the week. I, I watched Phil Mickelson come through yesterday during a practice round and everyone's going, we love you, Phil. Go get him, Phil. I, I heard nothing other than that. Now, it was only a very small glimpse uh, when I saw him, but uh, it seems like everyone's still cheering him on. So I, I don't think it's that. It's just when I look at the the list of guys who have gone to live so far, and I look at them in the betting markets, and I go, I don't love DJ this week. He's missed two cuts and finished in 59th place in his last three full field events. Uh, Phil Mickelson, I, I actually asked him the other day how he's going to focus for a U.S. Open that he's always wanted to win when he's really only played one competitive event in the last five months. And he said, yeah, I don't know. It's going to be tough. Don't like him. Bryson's been hurt. I know he's confident this week, but don't love Bryson this week. You start going down the list. Taylor Gooch, Louis Oosthuizen. I don't know. Like none of them really spark my interest all that much. And so it's less about the narrative and more about the players themselves. That said, by the way, guys, there are rumors flying around here that there are a lot of big name players going to live very, very soon. Ooh, you throw us a name or two? No, can't do that. <laughs> I love that. No, he's he's a smart guy. Is it just about the payday? Yeah. So here's the thing. And, and I've been saying this for a while, guys. And, you know, for those, so a very quick primer for those who don't know what's going on. Essentially, the Saudi Arabian government, through their public investment fund, is trying to woo the world's best professional golfers with ungodly sums of money to help sports wash and change all our, our minds of the countries and the government's image over there. And a lot of the players are uh, essentially taking that money and saying, okay, let's go do it. And it's changing and fracturing the world of professional golf as we know it right now. And so there are a lot more players who are, are thinking about it right now, who are negotiating right now. I've heard a handful of different names. I think I spoke with four different sources yesterday, and essentially they all came back with pretty much the same list of names. Are there other dissatisfaction with the tour, why they'd be willing to jump ship? There is some dissatisfaction with the tour, but look, if there was no other option, it's not like these guys aren't playing the tour. It, if Live Golf came over and said, look, we're going to have the same setup as the PGA Tour. We're going to have the same number of tournaments, the same payouts. You make money the same way. You guys want to come play? All the guys go, no, of course not. And by the same token, this wouldn't be so polarizing if, let's say it was a, I keep using this analogy, the Canadian maple syrup conglomerate came over and said, hey, we're going to give you hundreds of millions of dollars to come play. And us in the media who are criticizing them for helping sports wash and going over to a Saudi Arabia run league and, and helping them out. You want to go to Canada and play for some maple syrup? Like, go, go ahead. Yeah. We all have a price. Go, go do it. No problem. And so it's the fact that, you know, this is what makes it so polarizing. This is what makes it such an interesting topic. Essentially, I think it's a big game for these guys. They've got billions of dollars, literally plural billions of dollars. And they're just throwing money around and they're like, Hey, let's see what we can do to get some of the game's best golfers to become ours. And that's what's going on right now. I think the competition is good. Economics 101 is that you want competition. It raises the prices, raises demand, raises interest in the in the sport, right? Yes. But if you're fracturing the field, yeah. if you're watering down the tournaments, I, in, in that case, like it'd be like, Tom, what if we're taking 10 teams out of the NBA? Would that be good for 
for fans for basketball. You suddenly can't see John Morant in the same league as Luka Doncic. But at this point, aren't we still seeing them, the live golfers? Only in the majors. Only in the majors. Yeah, they're not going to be able to play the other events. I understand what you're saying. I've heard it for a long time. Competition breeds excellence. If the only fast food restaurant in your town is McDonald's and it's dirty and you don't like the food and they don't do a good job, they're slow and there's no other choice, well, you're going to still go there. If Burger King comes in next door, all of a sudden, it makes McDonald's business better. And of course, it's better for the consumer because you have options. I don't think this is better for the consumer. It might be better for the player who's getting paid a lot more and they have the option. The consumer, though, which is used to watching the best players in the world play against each other on a regular basis, now has... I, I don't know that you necessarily want options. So let's say, you know... Instead of all the best players on the same tour, you're going to have some of the best players on this tour, some over there, some over there. I think, honestly, fans might start walking away from golf altogether and say, look, I'm not really into the PGA Tour anymore because they only have half the guys. I don't want to support Liv because they've got half the guys. I don't like a lot of those guys. I just, you know, you can go watch something else instead. I worry about that, too, that it becomes even more of a major-centric sport. At a time, by the way, where it's sort of the deepest field of high quality players maybe we've ever seen in the sport right it makes the regular tour events that much more interesting because these these guys are good as i've heard half of these guys who are good aren't there anymore i'm not i'm not tuning into some of these ancillary events not to mention as of right now and all this stuff can change all this stuff might be changing as we speak the news cycle is moving so quickly these days but as of right now if you're playing the live you can't earn world ranking points world ranking points are essentially for the most part what gets you into the major championships? And so a lot of these live players, and I've heard this you know, talked about before, let's say a 22-year-old goes over to play live. He's the most talented 22-year-old in the world. He gets paid $100 million. He goes and plays over there. First of all, we don't really know if he's good or not. He could win three events a year on that circuit. We're like, I, I, he might be good, he might not be. Secondly, as of right now, he will not accrue any world ranking points, so he won't be playing in the majors. He won't be playing his craft against the best in the world. And so you're, you're sort of like, well, are you giving up everything you can play for in golf just for the money? Now, maybe you are. And maybe some players are completely okay with that. Rory McIlroy has been vehemently against this. So, you know, look, we play for legacy. We play for competition. I, I do, do think there's something to be said for that matters a lot more to Rory McIlroy than it does Pat Perez. For a guy who's 47, 48 years old, who's like, look, I'm not going to go win the Masters next year. It doesn't matter that much to me. You want to pay me and you want to pay me a lot of money to go play golf there instead of golf here? Yeah, sounds good to me. And so that's essentially what's happening right now. I know you live for more live talk, wow. but would, would it wow. be okay if I uh, if I pivot back to the Open again Please. for a couple more questions? Please, yeah, no bad puns. <laughs> this is the Underdogs podcast. We talked about that mid-tier guy you like. That whole, that whole group, I like them as well. Betting, I like them in DFS. Let's go for longer shots. Let's, say, let's, let's put the number at plus 8,000 or better. I think I know one direction you may be going in, but, uh, but I, I'm, I'm curious in, in sort of at that threshold who you might like as either a bet to win or, a, say, a top five. Also receiving votes, you have Justin Thomas at plus 1,200, Jordan Spieth at 2,800, uh, Matsuyama at 3,500. You got Keegan Bradley at 8,000, Alex Noren at 15,000, Peters at 20,000, Straka, 20,000. And you also, you mentioned Webb Simpson earlier, yet another 
Deke, if I'm correct, at plus 11,000. Webb Simpson on DraftKings right now at 110 to 1 is very tasty. I, I like that. I Like I said, I think Preach. the shorter have a better chance this week than they have over the last handful of years. Aaron Wise is a guy who's criminally undervalued on a weekly basis. I bet him just about every week. He almost paid off a couple of weeks ago, finished second to Billy Horschel at the Memorial Tournament. He's starting to be priced up a, a little bit, but I, I still like him. I don't know if he wins, but a, a top 10, top 20 play this week, I think, is pretty smart. For betting to win, I, I'm tired of hearing these as one and done. It just bet to win. Do we need to call it OAD or one and done picks? What, 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 where did that lexicon come from? Well, the one and done is a specific kind of pool that's specific to golf. Oh, okay. When I say one and done, it's the pools that are season-long pools where you can pick one player every week. I'm in eight different of these and you pick one player every week. So it's, you know, specific to, you know, it's also, it's, here's a few other players I like, but there's also some game theory involved. As I talked about, I said, Rory McIlroy is a great one and done pick this week because he might win the golf tournament. He's also maybe a bad pick if you're in last place in your one and done pool and everyone else is going to pick Rory this week. You're not going to make up ground if you pick him. And so you might want to pick a Webb Simpson that nobody else has and try to move way up the board. So there's strategy involved there. For the 2023 golf season, I would like to do a one and done uh, underdogs podcast pool that features you and other random people, friends of the program. I think that that needs to happen. Are you calling me random? No, the other. Yeah, he is. He is, Jason. There's nothing random about you, Jason. You said me and other random. That implies that I'm random. So it's like, me and other random people, but yes, I'm in. I would never call you <laughs> random, Jason. Never would call you random. Can't believe you'd do that to our two-time guest. Really? Really? See if you get a three-time Seriously. Come on, Jordan. A little Harris English at, uh, at, at plus 20,000, no? 200 to one? Nah, he's been hurt all year, has not played well at all this year. Look, if you really want to... Audrey Arnas, uh, the second-ranked Spaniard in the world. He's actually ranked higher than Sergio Garcia these days. Finished 30th in the PGA Championship. Again, he's not going to win. I really don't know how deep he can go on the list looking for a winner. Some of these corn fairy guys, if you want to find, and look, top 40 has a lot of value. Uh, you know, I know we all want a lottery ticket on a winner, but uh, looking at top 40 guys off the corn fairy, we talked about Cameron Young, Davis Riley, Mito Pereira. There are a bunch of guys who have shown this season they can make that jump and be pretty much superstars right away on the highest level. If you look at Brandon Matthews, MJ Duffy, Eric Barnes, Taylor Montgomery, four of the top seven on the Corn Ferry points list are qualified for this event. I would not be surprised to see any of them hovering around the top 20 or 30 this week. Any other fun bets you like? If, if again, if you're just sort of a, a casual fan with the DraftKings account and wants to put a, a few bucks on, on a different kind of pick, any, any, anything that catches your eye this week? I usually don't like these like weird prop bets. But I found one on DraftKings the other day. I talked about this on my podcast, Links to the Locks. And uh, I just think with all the weird stuff going on in the game right now, I feel like more weird stuff's going to happen. And so they listed plus 600, a hole-in-one. It's essentially a parlay. A hole-in-one, one hole-in-one this week, and the playoff. Like, that feels weird enough to happen. I mean, look, I have no <laughs> intel on, oh, yeah, somebody's ball is definitely not going to hit the stick and stay out but go into the hole. I mean, I hate betting stuff that's that random because really, I mean, it's, you have no Intel. I want to base stuff on, you know, Hey, I looked at the analytics and I talked to a player and I have some Intel and I know things we're basing that on. 
I don't know, maybe the ball goes in the hole. And maybe two guys tie at the end instead of one guy beating him by a shot. But it just feels like in weird times, let's bet on some weird stuff. So I like that. Yeah, you're not random. I would never call you random. You're not about random things happening, but maybe weird. Yes, we like weird. Weird is great. So weird things happening in this week at Brookline. You watched the finals. You went to Fenway. Mm -hmm. Any other sporting events you're going to get done this week? Because you're just hitting the cycle at this point. I'm trying. I've got work to do tonight, believe it or not. But I'm a major Orlando City fan. I'm, I'm a season ticket holder for the MLS team in my hometown. They are up here in New England playing the high-powered revolution tonight. And I may just hop in the car and go over to the stadium, grab a ticket, and go. I mean, why not keep the sports th- the sports theme rolling this week? So we'll see if I can pull it off. Awesome. Do you guys got any extra tickets for game six? <laughs> Maybe in exchange for a few range balls. We can make a deal. <laughs> we can do that. All right, Jason. Well, Thank you so much again. Hopefully we didn't refer to you as too random to, to be with us a third time coming up. I'm just giving you crap. I am absolutely random. And yes, I'd like to be your first third time guest before you have wow. a second, second time guest. Calling a shot. Open championship coming up. Let's make it happen. Let's do it. Jason Sobel, Action Network. You see him everywhere. He is the king of golf. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.